Please turn with me, if you would, to our text this morning that's found in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. When John and I talked about my filling the pulpit in his absence today, I knew I wanted to uh, look at Genesis 3, but as I prepared, I realized that there really was too much material here to cover in a single Sunday. And so today we'll look at verses 1 through 13, and next week, Lord willing, we'll conclude with verses 14 through 21. The context for Genesis 3, of course, is quite familiar. Uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. God created the man, Adam, and breathed into him the breath of life. Every need that Adam had was met by God in the Garden of Eden, including giving him a wife. God told the man and his wife in Genesis 1 verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then we see in Genesis 2 that God put the man in the garden to tend and work it. But there was a parameter, a limitation on Adam's authority. God said in Genesis 2 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the stage was set for Genesis 3, this battle over lordship. God is the Lord. And the question is whether Adam and his wife would recognize God's lordship over their lives. So read with me from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, what a privilege it is to open the scripture and to have your very word laid before us. Your word is inerrant and infallible and profitable to us, and so we need it desperately. Uh, 
But we are sinful and rebellious people whose hearts are dull to understand. Therefore, we need you through the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word for us this morning. To give us eyes to see and ears to hear the word you spoke so long ago and which you want us to hear today. And give me, a broken sinner, grace to faithfully proclaim your goodness. Would you do that for us, O Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to be God. (laughs) Uh, I want to do things my way. And so I can see myself in our first parents here. And I bet if we're all honest, we all can. We all have the inherent desire to be God and exercise lordship over our own lives. So what do we mean by this lordship? Well, it's who is the ultimate authority in our lives. Is it God or is it me? Genesis 3 shows us this battle for lordship that played out in the garden with our first parents. And it speaks to that same sinful desire that's in us today, that we want to be Lord of our own lives. This leads us to reject God's good commands and do it our own way. And this, beloved, is sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin this way. It says, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So sin is not doing what God commands or doing what God forbids. Therefore, sin is really rebellion against God. It is a denial of His lordship and His rightful authority over our lives. And as we'll see, it ultimately leads to alienation and separation from Him. So the main idea I want us to draw out of this text today is that since rebellion against God is sin that alienates us from Him, we must turn from our rebellion and embrace God's lordship over our lives. Our passage today shows us three reasons why we should embrace God's lordship. First, we must embrace His lordship because our hearts are prone to sin and rebellion. Second, we must embrace His lordship because the sin of our rebellion alienates us from God. And third, we must embrace His Lordship because He is good. I'm going to draw very heavily this morning on Dr. Ligon Duncan's Covenant Theology class at Reformed Theological Seminary. You can listen to that class through the RTS mobile app, which I've done, and I very highly recommend that. So if there are any good observations you hear on the text this morning, they came from Dr. Duncan. So as we turn to examine our text, our first point this morning is that we must embrace God's lordship because our hearts are prone to sin and rebellion. We've said that sin is rebellion against God and that is the natural inclination of our hearts. But why is this? I think the text gives us some indications and shows us first that our hearts are prone to doubt God's goodness. Remember what God told Adam in Genesis 2, 16 You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good, of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God gave man every tree, save one. This is clear evidence of God's goodness in His provision for the man and woman. Just reach up and grab the fruit of any tree you want, except for the one. But into this abundant place of provision, we see the serpent comes along and plants doubt as to the goodness of God. And the woman goes right along. Verse 1 begins, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
Let's first make a couple of initial observations on what Moses is telling us here about God and about the serpent. First, Moses makes clear that God is Lord, whether the man and woman acknowledge it or not. When we read the the full text a moment ago, did you notice that the speakers identified God differently? Every time in the passage that Moses refers to God, he calls Him the Lord God. He does that five times. In contrast, each of the four times that the woman and Satan refer to God, they simply call Him God. Moses here, I think, is emphasizing that God is Lord whether the woman or Satan or we ourselves acknowledge it or not. Second, Moses makes clear that Satan is a created being. He is simply a creature himself acting through the snake here, and therefore he is not equal to God. This battle for lordship over our hearts is not a battle between equals, and that should serve as a great comfort to us. So now let's look at what the serpent says. He provokes the woman to question God's goodness. In verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's like Satan says here, you mean to tell me that God actually said? Really? He's planting doubt about God's goodness. He's causing her to question God's motives and the sufficiency of His provision for them. And notice too that he clearly misquotes God to make it sound like God is being stingy. He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now that's not, of course, what God said. He twists God's words here. God said they could eat from every tree in the garden except one. And Satan implies here that God is holding something back from the man and the woman. And so he plants doubt as to the goodness of God and the goodness of his command. And so the woman takes the bait and she engages the serpent on this topic. She answers him in verses 2 and 3 saying, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She corrects the serpent on the wide latitude that God had given them, but she adds an extra condition, neither shall you touch it. That was not part of God's original command in chapter 2 verse 16. She apparently begins to turn on God here, viewing His commands as more restrictive and burdensome than they really were. And how quick are we to do the same? And further, the woman says, the reason not to eat the fruit or touch it is lest you die. Essentially, she says, we can't eat it because we'll die. She makes death the reason not to eat the fruit. But that's not how God said it. God said death was the consequence of eating. He said in verse 16 of chapter 2, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The reason to avoid the fruit of the tree was not because they would die, but because the Lord God commanded it. By focusing on the result of eating only as to herself, only as to her death, the woman has essentially taken God out of the equation. Her heart's focus is not obedience to God's lordship, but on her own self-interest and her own self-preservation. The woman shows us our hearts are prone to doubt God's goodness, but additionally we see that our hearts are prone to deny God's truth. The serpent seizes on the woman's response and plays into her inclination to disbelieve what God had said. So look at verses 4 and 5. They tell us, 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This assertion by the serpent that you will not surely die is a direct contradiction of the word of God to Adam in 2.16, that you shall surely die. Satan attacks God's truthfulness. He basically says God is lying. Are you going to follow your own heart or are you going to follow God? Then Satan makes the ultimate case for denying God's lordship. He says when you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. This here is an all-out frontal assault on God's lordship over their lives. Satan says God doesn't have to be Lord. You can be. You can make your own choice. You can be your own God. And Satan's claim, he says, you will be like God. And that's a claim that obviously denies the fact that they already were like God, having been made in his image. But the woman believed the lie and took the next step. Because our hearts are prone to doubt God's goodness and prone to doubt to deny his truth, our hearts are therefore prone to disobey God's commands. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They made their decision. Having believed the lie that God was withholding something good, they proceeded to make their own judgment about the fruit. They saw it as good for food, a delight to the eyes, to be desired to make one wise. They didn't believe God when He said that the consequences of eating it would be death. Now, I don't believe they were trying to commit suicide here. I think they simply didn't believe what God said was true. They rejected His Lordship, substituted their own, and disobeyed His command not to eat. And thus in this verse 6, we see the first and most cataclysmic sin in human history. Our hearts are prone to sin and rebellion against God. But our hearts cannot be trusted with lordship. For when we try to be God and reject His good commands, the sin of our disobedience makes a real mess of things. In January 2012, some of you will remember the cruise ship Costa Concordia set off on a seven-day Italian cruise with over 4,000 passengers and crew on board. As the ship approached the island of Giglio on January 13, the Concordia's captain, Francis Francesco Chitino deviated from the charted course the ship was supposed to follow. Now, the normal course was five miles from land, but Captain Chitino took the massive ship to within several hundred yards of shore in an unauthorized sail-by to give the passengers a better view of the island. As he approached the island, Captain Chitino turned off the Concordia's navigational alarm system because he would later say, I was navigating by sight because I knew those seabeds well. But navigation was apparently uh, an afterthought. The captain forgot to bring his reading glasses to the bridge so he couldn't see the radar uh, to guide them as they approached the island. But he didn't forget to bring along his mistress, a blonde Moldovian dancer, to be by his side on the bridge. Reports actually said that in the ship's dining room at that moment was playing the Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On, which was the theme from the movie Titanic. So what could go wrong, right? At 9.45 p.m., a Chitino impressed the passengers and his mistress with the near shore sail-by 
the Concordia struck a well-charted reef known as the Scully Rocks some 800 yards from the harbor entrance. The reef tore a 160-foot gash in the hull of the ship, flooding the engine room and leaving the ship without propulsion and in total darkness. The unthinkable had happened. A modern cruise ship, loaded with the latest technology for safe navigation, had smashed into a well-charted reef because the captain deviated from his instructions and thought he could do it his own way. But the parade of poor decisions didn't end there. Captain Chitino did not immediately alert authorities about the accident. That had to be done by someone on shore. When the port authorities made first contact with the ship some 30 minutes after the collision, the captain claimed the blackout was just caused by a blown generator. By the time the captain alerted port authorities of the collision, the Concordia had been taken on water for over an hour. And when the abandoned ship order finally came, the ship was listing so badly on its side that walking inside was difficult. Normal lifeboat evacuation became almost impossible and passengers began jumping into the water to swim to shore. By the time the evacuation of the Concordia was complete, some seven hours after the collision, 32 people were dead and hundreds were injured. The economic cost of the wreck has been estimated at $2 billion, which is three times more than what it cost to build the ship. Captain Chitino stood trial for the disaster and was ultimately found guilty of manslaughter, causing a shipwreck, and lying to authorities. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison. It would have been so simple, right, to avoid that tragedy. Don't deviate from the course. Don't disable the warning devices. Don't let the sinful desires of the flesh distract you from your duty. But Captain Chitino couldn't do it. He, he let his own hubris and desire to be in control cause him to ignore the clear course he was supposed to follow and do it his own way because, as he said, I knew those seabeds well. Our hearts are really no different. Like our first parents, we know what God requires of us in His Word but we're prone to think he's holding back something good or that he's not being truthful about the consequences of our sin and rebellion. We convince ourselves that we know the seabed's will and we can be our own captain and chart our own course as Lord of our lives. Beloved, if our first parents in their perfect pre-state, pre-fall state were prone to rebel against God, then know for sure that the hearts of us born on this side of the fall, having inherited a sinful nature, are absolutely hardwired to choose rebellion and sin. Now, it's easy for us to, to view grave things like murder or adultery as rebellion against God, but the real battle for lordship of our lives, I believe, takes place in the routine things, the little things, we might say. That's where I believe we're most prone to deny God's lordship of our lives and where we have the most to learn. Knowing God has forbidden drunkenness, will we have that one more drink at the dinner party? Or knowing that God has commanded that we love our neighbor, will we send that mean text or email about, what that, person, about that person who annoys us? Knowing that God has instructed us to tithe, do we keep his 10% of that bonus check because Christmas is coming up and it's for the kids? Knowing that God has commanded us to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, do we hesitate to go back down to the office on Sunday night to get a jump on the week. God is Lord, but our hearts are prone to sin and rebellion, which leads to making a mess of things. Therefore, our hearts cannot be trusted with lordship. 
but the well-charted path of God's Word is true and good. He alone can be trusted as Lord of our lives, and so we must embrace Him as Lord. So not only must must we embrace God's Lordship because our hearts are prone to sin and rebellion, but our second and much shorter point is that we must embrace God's Lordship because the sin of our rebellion alienates us from Him. Have you ever engaged in sin and then felt a distance from God? Have you ever tried to pray in those situations and it just feels empty or goes nowhere? I know I have. Sin makes it feel like a a wedge has been driven between us and God. In the shame of our sin, we hide from God and that leads to alienation from Him. We see from the text that the sin of our disobedience leads to shame. Sin, I think, is so enticing because it promises satisfaction. In verse 6, we saw our first parents see the fruit as good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. And Satan said if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. But sin never delivers what it promises. Look with me at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, remember, they had been naked all along. Uh, In Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the only thing that's changed here was that they had disobeyed God. They had sinned. And into that same condition of nakedness, sin now brought shame. We know this to be the case because they immediately tried to make a covering for their nakedness. If nothing was wrong, they wouldn't have worked on a solution. If nothing had changed in their perception of themselves, they wouldn't have tried to cover up. But something had changed. Their sin brought shame, and so they sewed the fig leaves together in an effort to hide this shame they had not previously known. But the shame was not only manifested between the man and his wife, but more tragically, it affected their relationship with God. The text further shows us that the shame of our sin leads us to hide from God. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They had chosen to reject God's lordship. They disobeyed His command and followed their own desire. And the clear result of this sin was alienation from God. They heard God in the garden and they hid from Him because they didn't want to be in His presence. I imagine they were beginning to feel the gravity of their sin and that the free and unbroken communion they once enjoyed with God was now shattered. Go back with me for a moment to the bridge of the Costa Concordia. There's something else I didn't tell you about how Captain Chitino handled the mess that he'd made. Like our first parents, he ran and hid. During the course of the evacuation, as the ship continued to take on water, as the Concordia listed farther and farther over on its side, as the ship remained in pitch black dark, Captain Chitino broke the cardinal maritime rule. With hundreds of passengers and crew still stranded on board, desperately trying to flee to safety, the captain abandoned his own ship. He fled from the disaster that he had caused. Chitino got into one of the lifeboats and was able to get free of the ship. For over two hours, the Italian Coast Guard demanded he get back on the ship. They reminded him of his duty to his passengers and his crew, and they pleaded with him to go back and oversee 
the evacuation. But Chitino refused to go back to the Concordia. He couldn't face the mess that he had made. For five hours, he hid in the safety of his lifeboat as the evacuation continued and people died. He later claimed to have fallen into a lifeboat by mistake, but the court didn't buy it. And so Chitino was also found guilty of abandoning ship. Sin promises to give us our heart's desires, but again, it never delivers on that promise. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Our first parents thought that disobedience to God's command would make them like God, but it only brought them shame and alienation from the author of life. Captain Chitino thought deviating from the charted course would bring him admiration in the eyes of his passengers and his mistress, but it only brought death and destruction. He tried to run from it and it ruined his life. So too with us. The shame brought on by our sin causes us to be afraid of God and too often results in us running away from Him. So I want to suggest two brief applications on this point. First, acknowledge your sin before God. Too often I want to pretend that what I'm doing or what I've done isn't really sin. I try to convince myself I've done nothing wrong, but I know it's just an act. We must view the shame of our sin as a gracious work of the Holy Spirit to make us recognize our sin and compel us to confess our sin to the Lord and to turn from it. Second, turn to Him, not away from Him. Our sin alienates us from God and interrupts that sweet communion that we have with Him. But hiding like Adam or Captain Chitino is not the answer. Turning to God is. Only He can bring our souls the satisfaction and completeness that we seek to gain from sin. So we must embrace God's Lordship because our hearts are prone to sin. We must embrace His Lordship because our sin leads to alienation from God. And finally, we must embrace God's Lordship because He is good. God sees the messes that we make with our sin and the alienation from Him that our sin causes. So we have to ask, is there any hope? Can we be reconciled to God? The clear answer from this text is yes, because He is good, He both desires and accomplishes the reconciliation with Him that we can't achieve on our own. What we first see is because He is good, God shows us that our own efforts to cover sin don't work. The Holy Spirit shows us in this passage that our first parents' own efforts to cover their sin were in vain. Look at verses 9 through 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Yet he wasn't actually naked because they had made loincloths out of fig leaves. So his body technically was covered with leaves. He wasn't naked in a physical sense, but yet he was naked in a spiritual sense, laid bare in his sin before God. Adam realized the consequences of his sin were far deeper than his own efforts could cure. His rebellion could not be pardoned by his own handiwork. His shame could not be covered by vegetation. His alienation from God could not be reversed by his own efforts. And so he was afraid of the Lord God, as the text tells us, and he hid from God. But God knows that because of our sin, we are unable on our own to move to Him. So what we see next in the text is that because He is good, 
God graciously draws us to Himself. We see Him do that with Adam and his wife. Now, be honest, how many of us, if we were like God, would have squashed them like bugs? That would have probably been my reaction. You know, I, I gave you one job. But it's further proof that His Lordship of our lives is far better than ours. God graciously pursues Adam and draws the man out of the bushes to Himself. God asks in verse 9, Where are you? You ever thought about that question? I mean, now obviously God knows all things, so what is He doing here? This is not God seeking information on Adam's location. He knows exactly where Adam is, physically and spiritually. Adam's in the trees and God knows it. Adam is ashamed and afraid and avoiding God and God knows it. Adam's sin has alienated him from God and God knows it. And yet in His gracious kindness, God calls to Adam, where are you? God takes the initiative and gently draws Adam out of the bushes and to Himself. And having called Adam out, God then helps Adam see the real scope of the problem. And so we learn that because He is good, God shows us that sin, our rejection of His Lordship, is the real root of our alienation. Adam tells God he hid himself and was afraid because he was naked. In Adam's eyes, it was the immediate effect of his sin, his nakedness, that caused him to be alienated from God. But God, in His goodness to Adam, directs His attention to the true cause of his alienation. Read with me in verse 11. He, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Remember again that God lacks no information here. He knows exactly what's happened. He asks these questions not to elicit information, but to direct Adam's focus to his true problem. God asks, who told you you were naked? But he doesn't wait for a response because nakedness is the immediate consequence of his sin, not the cause of his alienation. God directs Adam instead to the real cause of his alienation, asking, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, it was Adam's disobedience to God's command that was the real problem. It was Adam's rejection of God's lordship that led to his alienation from God. God doesn't let him think that it's his nakedness that's the problem, nor is it the shame of his sin that's the true cause of alienation. It's because Adam chose his own way over God's way. It's his disobedience that alienates him from God. And in His goodness, God made clear Adam's sin is the problem. And that problem of sin is the problem that Adam could not fix himself. The nakedness Adam could cover, but the rebellion against God, he could not. Only God can remedy our sin and bring reconciliation. In these, the last two verses, the man and the woman engage in a massive blame-shifting campaign. But in the end, we get some indication that they start to understand. Verses 12 and 13 say, The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. At the end of the day, they both concede, I ate. In His goodness, God opens their eyes to see that disobedience to Him the rejection of His Lordship is the true cause of their misery. 
Josiah Pillsbury knew something of the consequences of rebellion and the gracious mercy shown by a good sovereign towards a traitor. In the fall of 1861, shortly after the Civil War broke out, the border state of Kentucky officially decided to stay loyal to the Union. However, Confederate sympathizers organized a parallel rival government called the Provisional Government of Kentucky, which was actually admitted to the Confederacy. Josiah Pillsbury was installed as the state auditor of this provisional government. Two years into the conflict, in December 1863, President Lincoln issued a proclamation offering amnesty to those who had participated in the rebellion. With Kentucky firmly in the Union, Pillsbury saw it was in his best interest to seek amnesty. But Lincoln's offer didn't apply to high-ranking rebel officials like Pillsbury. So Pillsbury could not receive amnesty by his own efforts. If he were to be pardoned for his treason, he would have to appeal directly to President Lincoln, which he did. Whether Pillsbury would be pardoned was completely within Lincoln's discretion. The war had ripped the nation apart. Hundreds of thousands of men were dead, and justice would certainly demand no pardon for the traitor Pillsbury. On January 4, 1864, Lincoln responded to Pillsbury's pardon request. The president didn't sugarcoat his crimes, writing, by connecting himself with an organization of rebels against the government of the United States, he has committed a grave offense against the laws of said United States and made himself liable to heavy pains and penalties. But then the president shifted his tone, noting that Pillsbury has now heartily repented of his crime and taken the oath of allegiance. And in a remarkable act of undeserved mercy for this former rebel leader, Lincoln did for Pillsbury what he could not do for himself, writing, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do hereby grant to the said Josiah Pillsbury a full and free pardon of all treasons, felonies, and misdemeanors by him committed against the government of the United States. Lincoln knew that reconcil reconciling the nation could not be achieved only by dispensing justice. Instead, reconciliation would require dispensing mercy and forgiveness toward those who had rebelled. Or as Lincoln himself would later put it, with malice toward none, with charity for all. God is good and He desires reconciliation with His people who have become alienated from Him because of their sin. In His goodness, God shows us that our own efforts to cover sin are futile. Just as Josiah Pillsbury could not obtain amnesty on his own, so too Adam could not cover the shame of his sin by fig leaves. And in God's goodness, he drew Adam out of the bushes in much the same way that President Lincoln held out hope of pardon even to Confederate leaders. And as Lincoln had to confront Pillsbury with his crime before offering pardon, so too God drew Adam's attention to the real root of his alienation, rebellion against God's lordship. We've got to stop sowing fig leaves in an effort to cover our own sins. It doesn't work. We have to look to the one true Lord who is good, who draws us to Himself, who reveals our sin as the cause of our alienation from Him, and who ultimately moves toward us to restore us into relationship with Himself. I promise you that preparing this sermon has stepped on my toes, and Lord willing, y'all will feel a little pressure too. Life is a battle over lordship, and so this is the question I want to leave us with this morning. Who will you acknowledge to be Lord of your life? Will it be you, or will it be God? 
We can believe the lie that Satan told the woman that God is not good, that He cannot be trusted, that He's holding back on you, that real life has taken life by the horns and doing things your own way. We can act on that lie and pretend He's not really Lord. We can reject God's good commands and embrace our sin. Shame and fear will be ours, and alienation from God will be the result. But there's another way. We can lay aside the notion that, if, that we can be Lord of our own lives. We can recognize our hearts cannot be trusted with lordship because they are prone to sin and rebellion. We can believe that shame and alienation from God will be the sure results of our sin. We can acknowledge that we have no ability in ourselves to undo sin's effects. And we can instead embrace God's lordship as infinitely better than our own, trusting that God in His goodness will draw us to Himself, will show us our need of Him, and will, through a promised deliverer we'll see next week, reconcile us to Himself. God is Lord, and I challenge all of us to embrace His Lordship over our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this gracious word from the Scripture reminding us that You are the Lord God. We are so quick to rebel against Your good commands and to embrace our sin, thinking we can be Lord of our own lives. Please forgive us, Father. Convince us that our sin, our way, will not lead to satisfaction, but will only lead to our shame and alienation from You. And when we do sin, graciously help us to recognize it for what it is, to see that we cannot fix it on our own, and in Your good mercy, draw us out of our shame and reconcile us to Yourself, all for Your glory. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, Amen.